Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 134. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Don't you just wish there was an easier way to count your inventory and send your orders? Well, you are in luck because that system does exist and it's called ChefSheet. And you can start using it today by going to www.chefsheet.com. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guests, Mike Solomonov and Steve Cook. How are you guys doing today? We're awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. No, it really is my pleasure. Are you guys feeling unstoppable today or what? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's that's your question. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's do this. So Mike and Steve are the men behind Cook and Solo, a restaurant group which consists of Zahab, Avon Fisher, Diesinghoff, Percy Street Barbecue in four federal donut locations. Mike is a product of the Florida Culinary Institute, and Steve was molded from uh, Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania in the French Culinary Institute. Their restaurants are getting accolades from all angles, some of which include two three-bell and one four-bell ratings from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, just so you guys know, three bells is excellent, four bells is superior Uh, Two of their restaurants were listed on Travel and Leisure's list of 50 uh, best new restaurants in the world. And they were featured in the National Eater 38, Where to Eat in 2015. Uh, Mike and Steve also had their first book coming out in October, uh, Zahav, A World of... uh, Israeli cooking, and I think uh, we'll learn a little bit more about that too. But I mean, guys, this is just extremely aerial. Uh, I mean, I'm so excited. You guys are, you know, we just scraped the surface of what you are, what you've accomplished. And uh, we're going to get the interview started with uh, a motivational and, you know, inspirational quote that you guys have for us today. So who wants to go first? Uh, I'm going to go first. This is Mike. And I forget how to say it in Latin, but I believe it's don't let the bastards grind you down. Don't let the bastards grind you down. And what does that, like, say to you? Like, how does that resonate? Well, I think that, you know, in any uh, small business, but, you know, I suppose in life, I think that you're always presented with a good outlook or a, or a negative outlook. And I think that sometimes, you know, a lot of negative attitudes really contribute to uh, to your day or your perspective on what you're doing and and uh certainly in restaurants mm. so i think that it's important to remember to not let it um, sort of take over Awesome. It's so true. And I think it all goes back to the, the law of attraction. If you let that negative energy get to you, you're going to attract negative energy. It's the same as the positive energy. So it's great stuff. Steve, what do you have for us? There's a quote at the beginning of the Charlie Trotter cookbook, which I was an influential book, I think, in a lot of cooks who came up around the time that Mike and I did. And I, for, I can't recite the whole quote. It's a little bit long and I don't know the philosopher, but it's essentially talking about the power of action and how when you're, uh, before you decide to jump in to a venture, all you can see in front of you is obstacles. But the very moment that you take that leap of faith, 
all these things begin to appear to you uh, that you never would have otherwise uh, discovered if you hadn't just jumped in. And I think that um, that's been a huge kind of motivator for me, for us, in taking all these risks and, and being an entrepreneur and being our own boss, which is extremely rewarding, is to really leap in with both, both feet. And that's really the only way to, the only way to get anywhere is to commit to something. You can't it. really half-ass it. So true. And it kind of reminds me of some of the other quotes I've heard, which are, you know, ready, fire, aim. You know, first, you just got to dive in there and figure it out as you go. Um, and just taking massive action. If you're going to do something, I mean, just get in there and start going. And you guys are awesome living examples of that. I'm motivated. We've got that inspirational ball rolling. So now... Uh, I kind of want to get your backstories. I mean, I, it's going to be hard to get all of it because we have both of you here today. But I guess let's start with Mike. You seem to kind of been the person to go first. So talk to us about, like, is there a time when you just knew that this industry was going to be more than a job but your career? Yeah, well, I was in Israel, and I was uh, I sort of tried a couple different things, and I wasn't working. Like, school wasn't working out. I just sort of got a job cooking, and I fell in love with it, and I really – there hasn't really been a day that I've stopped loving, you know, what it is that I do. Mm-hmm. It's, obviously, my job and my daily tasks are a lot different than they were, you know, okay. when I was 19. Um, but uh, I think I remember really falling in love with it. Mike, was and, that the age when you guys started? You said 19. Was that when you decided to get out yeah, of school? And- I, well, I was like, I was 18 or 19, and I, um, you know, I was sort of lost, and... I think cooking helped me center myself and, awesome. and apply myself. Was there a, a moment, can you think of a specific moment, Mike, where something happened where you just kind of had an aha moment and you're like, this isn't just a job. Like, this is going to be my career. Like, I, I love what I'm doing. It's centering me. Like, this is it. Is there a time that really sticks out to you? You know, there were a couple moments. It wasn't like, a, I mean, I knew that I loved cooking. I think that it takes a little bit of time and a, a, like some certain experiences to mm-hmm. establish that you're going to do it. I think mm-hmm. that, I think it was probably when I was going to culinary school and working to sort of pay for culinary school and, and pay to live. And, you know, I was very content doing that. And it was pretty brutal. It was a lot of work and it was a lot of sort of information. And I, there wasn't really a moment where I thought that it was too much. And, you know, I, I was having a good time. So I think it was a few years of getting a taste of what uh, what the industry would be okay. and appreciating it. So uh, let's fast forward a little bit. You are a graduate of the Florida um, Culinary Institute. At what point did you decide to, like, you know, tackle this and go to school for it? Because you said school wasn't working out, but you decided to go back at some point. All right. Well, I tried, like, normal college, and I didn't, I just, I didn't have the self-control, and I wasn't mature enough yeah. or focused. So I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah. So when I started cooking, I realized that I enjoyed it. I had a little bit of, like, college money left over, and... I decided to go to culinary school, sort of based on that. And okay. it wasn't that expensive. And the way in which the program was set up is that you had these, like, four or five-hour classes, and you could sort of work in addition to that. So, oh, cool. Um, like I said, I really, I really enjoyed it. And uh, graduating from culinary school, like, that was a big feat for me to complete anything, you know. And yeah. family were, like, rejoicing that I finish something so awesome it was good 
Yeah. And then, I mean, one of the things that I really admire about what you did is where you went to go work. I mean, you went to go work for the Vetri restaurant group. And I mean, I think one of the best things we can do if, if we're aspiring to be something great is to go work for great people. And, uh, yeah. I mean, Steve, you did the same thing too. We'll get to your story, but I mean, actually, I think we can come back to this because there's a lot of opportunities to touch on this. I want to hear your story, Steve. I mean, when did you know, like, is there a moment, your aha moment when you just said, you know, I love this industry. Like I, this is my career. Well, I remember it was 1995 and I was my first year in New York out of, out of school. I was uh, working for an investment bank, but, you know, not loving it. And I went out to eat with my dad. He was visiting from out of town. We we got a 10 o'clock reservation was the earliest reservation we could get at a restaurant called Poe, which was Mario Batali's first restaurant. You know, he was there cooking in the kitchen. And I remember when the time, when we finished our meal, it was very late. We were one of the last tables in there. Employees, they cranked up the stereo, and it was like exile on Main Street. They were playing on the stereo. And I was sitting there having had you know, one of the best meals that I have eaten, had eaten to that point, listening to this, like, great, you know, this great music, and it really dawned on me that this might be for me. Um, and I, cool. it, it took me six years to kind of put that into action, but I think I always look back to that, to that night as the thing that was the flip the switch for me of, of, of that this could be a career. That's really incredible because most people who get into, not most, but a lot of people get into this industry not realizing from the very beginning that it's all about the experience. And it was your experience that kind of, I don't know, like shown a light on that just because of how great your experience was. I mean, you knew from that experience that this is what it's all about. And I think that is a great way to break into the industry. And you do have a really cool background because you were an investment banker before getting into the, the restaurant industry. I mean, what happened? What flipped the switch for you? Like, why did you get out of that industry? I think that, um, I knew right away that it wasn't long term for me, and sorry, what age were you when you made the switch? I'm just curious to paint the picture. When I made the switch full time, it was 2001, so I was 28 years old. Okay, thanks for that. Sorry for uh, interrupting. Yeah, no. So for the pre, for the six years before that, I was working as an investment banker, but I knew pretty much right away that it wasn't going to be a full. You know, that wasn't going to be my career. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of horror stories. I mean, I have a lot of friends with horror stories. I was very fortunate to be hired by these two guys who are mentors to me, who have backed our restaurants, who I continue a relationship with. And I had a good, I had a good life as an investment banker, but it wasn't ultimately satisfying. Mm. And, you know, I, I always cooked. My family had always cooked. I, you know, I cooked for fun. I, I don't know. I mean, we, these days, I, tend to make much quicker decisions but back then i was like it took me six years to kind of really get the balls to well to make I mean, that switch it's a i think it's incredibly inspiring steve because i mean not that 28 is a real old man like but at, at that time you know a lot of people are stuck in this groove in this this industry that you know they might be making good money they, they might be comfortable but are they fulfilled? And I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, you might have all this money and you might, no matter you know what you're doing, but are you happy with what you're doing? Are you, are you living the life you want to live? And it doesn't sound like you were. And I, I'm happy that you kind of, you know, made that switch because it, you know, what you're doing now, imagine if you never did make that switch, it's incredible. So really great stuff. Thank you for being uh, inspirational like that. No problem. Thank you. Um, so 
then you went to the the French Culinary Institute. Is that around the time you, you yeah. go full swing into the culinary? Yeah, I mean, I actually, and this is a credit to the two guys that I mentioned before, but I actually went to culinary school at night while I was still working. Okay. So they and they were able to they they let me do that. So I was able to sort of have an orderly orderly transition, I guess. Cool. Awesome story. So then you guys eventually cross paths in Philadelphia, correct? Uh, working at um, having a brain fart. Starts with an M. Help me out, guys. Mar- Marigold Kitchen. Yes, thank you. And uh, it's all, I guess, uh, you know, it's all history from there. Um, I'm sure we'll start to learn more. But uh, we got to start diving into this uh, interview a little bit more and find out more about what makes you guys successful. Because if there's one thing I've learned from all these interviews is that there's no such thing as great restaurants. There's only great people in restaurants. And you guys are without a doubt great because of the things you've accomplished. So what are your it factors, the things, the characteristics, the habits that contribute to your success, Mike? I, I don't, that's a hard one to answer. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I feel like I'm sort of lucky and blessed to be surrounded by so many great people. I, I wouldn't be the chef or the cook I am without the relationship that I have to Steve, and I, I don't know. That's a hard one to answer. I, I really don't know. I love what I do. I, I love the people around me, and you know, I, I uh, specifically with Zahav, you know, I, I try to represent a little bit of my heritage. That's also inspiring. That sort of builds passion. So. I'm not sure. I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll go ahead and say one of the things are, I mean, you, you clearly are humble because of the things you've accomplished and you said surrounding yourself with great people. I mean, how much of an influence would you say the, uh, the people you worked for early on in your career, like the Betri hospitality group, uh, Jeff, uh, Benjamin was recently a guest this past week on the show and man, that guy is incredible. I mean, how much of an influence of men like Jeff do you think had on your, where you are today? A hundred percent. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am without the people that I've worked with. And not just uh, Mark Bethany uh, and Jeff Benjamin, even though they were huge, but I worked for a great guy named Terrence Geary before that. I worked for, uh, it wasn't particularly high-end, but I worked for a very cool restaurant group in Florida. And there were a lot of chefs that really could sense that I was interested in pushing myself and, uh, so I worked for some great guys in Florida named uh, one guy was John Hanley, another guy's name was Mark Solansky, um, Lisa Batsuma was the corporate chef, and she had been Charlie Trotter's pastry chef at one point. And then, you know, when I met Steve, I mean, we at that point had very different sort of jobs at Marigold, but I think that over the years, you know, we we learned a lot from each other, but I certainly wouldn't be the restaurant for or even the chef or the hospitality person that I am without him. So. Awesome. Well, I guess that's a good segue into um, having Steve take the reins. So, Steve, what are your it factors? If you could say, you know, if you could limit it down just a few contributing habits or characteristics, what would it be? I think one of the things that people would be surprised to find out about Mike and I is that for two guys who come from a strictly back-of-house experience, we really agree or both feel very strongly that the food is really secondary to the to the guest experience and that you have to be able to set your ego aside when it comes to pleasing the guests. And I think that's a, <laughs> a hard thing for a cook or a chef. I'm happy, really... that, I'm happy that you're saying that, uh, chef, because I was recently at the um, 
the oh man, I was out in Boulder for the chefs collaborative meeting out there, and I was having this argument with a bunch of chefs. I didn't win, <laughs> but it's good to know that there are a few chefs out there that do believe that. Sorry to cut you off. Keep going. No, that's fine. I mean, ultimately, I think most people would go back to a restaurant where they feel like they've been treated hospitably. Their their money is valued. If the food was only okay, versus a restaurant with fabulous food where they were made to feel like it was their privilege to even be there. And mm-hmm. uh, obviously we want the food to be great. And that, and I think our success is, is taking that approach to hospitality and layering great food on top of it. But I think that the foundation always has to be hospitality. And so we work well together for a couple of reasons. One is because we share that same vision Two, and getting back to what Mike was talking about with people I mean, Michael, you know, he's a people person and he, he invests his time. He, he's, sometimes to his own personal detriment, puts so much of his time into making sure that our people that work for us are happy getting the experience, you know, that is fulfilling to them. And I think that those two things are big keys to our success. Absolutely. I mean, just to summarize, we have for Mike, um, surrounding yourself with great people. And I would say also just being humble, which is a huge, you know, attracting factor. Um, and like Steve just said, you devote your time to give to others, uh, which all comes back to you. And then Steve, you have, you know, your hospitality focused and, uh, you have the ability to, you know, the two of you together put all this, this visioning to, be pulling in one direction. I think that's a huge part of it too, because so often the reason why restaurants don't work with partners is because people have different visions and everyone's pulling in different directions, but you guys seem really aligned and that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think after all these years, we sort of trust each other and we disagree plenty. Uh, we try to do it privately, mm-hmm. but we usually, we usually kind of can come to, you know, we usually can find a common ground. Awesome. Um, so yeah, um, I think that's good to be Steve, I'm curious, how have you used your background as an investment banker? Like, would you say your strength comes into the the picture as being, do you have that business mentality? Is that, uh, is that, I don't really know much about investment banking, but did that influence your success at all? Do you think? I think so. I mean, you need to be able to raise money yeah. for sure to open these, to, to open restaurants. And I think there's a lot of talented chefs out there who struggle doing that because they don't speak the language. You know, a lot of it is just putting together a good package that is a signal to potential investors that, you know, this person is serious. This person that's asking me for money is serious. They've thought it through. They know what they're talking about. Awesome. So I think being able to speak that language was a big part of it. Great. I think we'll learn a little bit more about this during the question about raising the capital and funding. But now I want you guys to kind of put your heads together and share a story with us because it's one thing to point out these habits, but it's another thing to actually learn from a story. Can you think of a time that where one of these habits, you pick the habit, uh, where it really shone out for the two of you, Uh, maybe the hospitality or um, just maybe your devotion to giving time to other people. Like you guys pick something. Let let us hear it. We do. We try to do this every. We try to do this every day. Um, I feel like we try to build a culture where going above and beyond is kind of the norm. And I mean, I know that sounds like unspecific, but I mean, you know, you know, we had a question, and this is like sort of reoccurring, but we had a couple that was uh, uh, one of the guys was a Marine and went to Afghanistan, and be- before he left. They had a meal at the hub, and then when they came reunited, we bought their dinner. And it wasn't buying a dinner for somebody is fine. It's not like it doesn't replace creating a great experience or anything. But the fact that we 
should have had that privilege to be part of that, mm. you know? Like, the fact that we were included in this, and uh, I guess that, for us, was almost a gift. That is That's awesome. sort of silly, yeah. but I don't know. We, we do... I, mean, I think we do stuff like that all the time. I, I really do. As Steve said, the culture that we've created is to really be thinking about those things all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always trying to connect. We are always trying to blow people away. And we always, you know, we want to be making memories every single, with every guest that we have. And the challenge is to get, I mean, I guess to find the staff that is like willing to do that because it's a lot of sacrifice. And you're thinking yourself out of the equation all the time. We spent a lot of time. I mean, it's great to get, you know, raves and positive reviews. Uh, we spent a lot of time seeking out, um, you know, we spent a lot of time and attention on bad reviews, whether it's a Yelp review or an open table review. And we spent a lot of time in the restaurant seeking out criticism to help us get better. And I think it's mm. that, that's like I said, that's, that's hard to do. I mean, it takes every, you know, you can get a negative review and it can be, this is an example of why, why hospitality always wins. You can have a guest write a negative review and it can be filled with factual inaccuracies. It can be based on flawed information or, or, or a lack of understanding about what we're doing. The sort of instinct of everybody is to, is to get defensive and, and to go point by point and say, you're wrong because of this, this, and this, or this didn't happen. The real hard thing to do is to sort of turn the other cheek and instead of lashing out is to respond with genuine sympathy that this person didn't have a good time because it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant whether the fish was cooked correctly or overcooked. It's irrelevant whether the server was, you know, curt or not. The only thing that matters is whether the guests had a good experience. So to be able to take those negative reviews, suppress the instinct to lash out, invite them back in, lavish, you know, service, attention, food on them, and, and make them walk out saying, because that, that customer that walks out of that experience, a fan, is better than, is in many ways better than the person who comes in the first time and has a perfect experience because they've given us an opportunity to, to turn it around. And that, I think, demonstrates more hospitality than just a perfect one-off experience. Uh, so that's I'm, not a specific example. Steve is talking right now, right? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Thanks, Steve. Steve, I, I couldn't agree more with you and Mike. Um, I, I personally think, and I think it, what you guys are saying, it's, it's a line straight from Danny Meyer's book, Saying the Table. I mean, you, we have the ability to write the end of the story. And sometimes when things don't go well, those are the best times to show how hospitable you are by listening, like you said, by showing sympathy and empathy. It's what you do afterwards to show that you genuinely care about their experience that will really blow them away. And uh, I mean, I think it's so dead on true. I I 100% agree with you. And I think you guys uh, made a a great uh, point there. That's awesome stuff. I think we can learn a lot from your successes and and clearly hospitality is one of the things that contributes to your success, but we got to talk about failures now because I mean, we learn from success, but we learn the most from falling hard on our asses and getting back up. So what was one time where the two of you guys fell hard together, maybe made a bad business decision or anything you can think of where you just failed and uh, how you got past that? I mean, what a lot of people uh, don't know and would be probably shocked to, to learn, the hub's going to turn seven in, in uh, another month, and it's one of the most you know, knock on wood, the most critically acclaimed and successful restaurants in Philly in the last several years. But what a lot of people don't know is that we almost closed before our first anniversary. We had a concept that was new 
probably as unique as you can be, given that nothing is ever unique. We didn't know how to serve our guests, frankly. We, you know, the menu was confusing, and, um, and it was a stressful experience for guests, and we weren't doing near the numbers that we needed to do to sustain you know, our overhead. So that was a real, a real gut-check moment for both of us. I'm real proud of how we were able to hunger down, realize, you know, be very critical of ourselves, A, B, uh, make some really hard decisions about how to survive while we sort of righted the ship, and see, find a, find a better, you know, successful path to put the restaurant on. I'm curious, like, this to me almost sounds like not a failure, but a success. Where did you guys fail in the story? Like, why did you almost close your doors, before, you know, in the first year of opening? We weren't doing our job as sort of hospitality folks. We weren't listening to our customer. I think that, I think this happens a lot. I don't think we necessarily had the experience to be doing what we were doing. Um, and, uh, you know, we just weren't, we just weren't doing the job that we should have been doing. Um, we, so the job you should have been doing was, was listening. Just want to make sure I understand. Yeah, I think that we should have been listening. I also think that we had sort of two concepts at that time, not to get too involved, but we had Zav that was like traditional and casual. And then we had the, um, Part of Zob that was called the quarter, where I would do like a tasting menu um, that was really elaborate and sort of modernist, I guess. And it wasn't, yeah, I, I mean, that I sort of discredited what we were doing at Zahav. It just was silly. It was silly. Uh, uh, we, we've opened a lot, this is Steve, I mean, just to tack on to what Mike was saying, we've opened quite a few uh, restaurants or locations since this experience at Zahav, and I think the one thing that sticks with me and, and what I was taught by our sort of early failure at Zahav was there is a lot of work that goes into opening a restaurant, but it's nothing compared to the amount of work that needs to be done in the first month, six weeks, two months, because you can have all these great ideas, but until you test them on customers and hear what they have to say and really, really listen to what they have to say, you don't know what you have. Mm. And so the best, I think the people that are the most successful, or at least I can speak from personal experience are when you open that restaurant, you have to be willing to throw out all these ideas that you've spent a month or six months or a year thinking were the greatest ideas in the world. You have to be willing to just cut them loose if your customers tell you that they're not working. And our failure as a hub was not listening to our customers. So we have not, you know, we've been careful to not make that mistake. Well, it's, it sounds like this was a great learning experience for you guys because, like you said, the failure wasn't listening, it wasn't pivoting, wasn't adapting to what your customers wanted. Um, and this, the success was you learned that you have to listen, and now you guys do such an incredible job of that. But also, I think what we can all learn from this story is uh, sometimes people give up just before things start to work out. And like you guys said, you almost closed the doors after a year, um, but you pushed forward. And it kind of reminds me of Seth Godin's The Dip. I mean, you you guys were in a very niched market. Uh, not many people were doing the same kind of food as you. Um, so it was easy to get to number one, which is great, but you have to really work hard to you know, get people to get it. And it sounds like you guys held on just long enough and you listened just well enough for people to understand and to get those raving reviews and those fans and those brand ambassadors. So that's an incredible story. Awesome. One of the, one of the best here on the show. Thank you. Cool. Um, 
Yeah, man. So, or men, I guess. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we, we have gotten halfway through the show. Uh, you guys are killing it. It's time for you guys to drop some restaurant bombs of knowledge on us. This is going to be a speed round. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Sure. Let's just, <laughs> cool. Let's just take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. In the restaurant business, making money and saving money are the same thing. To be unstoppable, you need systems to control your costs. ChefSheet.com is a subscription-based inventory system that will empower your restaurant with the tools you need to reduce your costs by 2-4%. to 4%. And for super fast end-of-period inventory counts, use ChefSheet Mobile on all iOS and Android products. ChefSheet makes it possible for you to order, count, and send your orders to any vendor in the world in one step. Truthfully, how well do you know your food and beverage costs? Chef Sheep helps you keep track of all your plate costs in real time. Keep track of your vendors too with real-time price tracking of everything you buy. Start using Chef Sheep for free today or upgrade to a premium plan. And if you do upgrade to a premium plan, Chef Sheep will send you a $30 Amazon gift card. Just email them unstoppable at chefsheet.com with your restaurant name. Get on it. So we're back, and my first question in uh, the speed round is, what advice do you have for funding a restaurant and getting that initial capital? Make sure you know how to put together a a polished-looking business plan. And explain to us a little bit deeper in the significance of that and why it's so important. I mean, I think, as in many things in life, presentation is everything, and if you, you know, everybody... Everybody knows how risky investing in the restaurant business is, and I mean your business plan is a proxy for how you're gonna how you're gonna run your restaurant. And if mm-hmm. it's sloppy and there's typos and it's not thought through, then as an investor, that's what I would be thinking. I would be thinking that I'm dealing with someone who's too sloppy and doesn't think things through. So I think that the presentation is is very important. Awesome. Anything else you guys want to add? No, I mean I don't I don't think so. I. Everyone gets, they have these like rules about who they ask to invest or not invest. I don't know. Yes, family, mostly, I guess. Um, all right. So when you are looking for these people and you're hiring people, I mean, what are you doing? How are you hiring these good people? What advice do you have for us? Uh, I think that hiring is, um, I think it's a little tricky in the restaurants. I deal mostly with, I mean, I, I'm usually part of a lot of interviews with uh, front of the house, but mostly back of the house. I mean, everybody comes in and stages. And then based on that, we sort of fire them. But really, it takes about three months to see how a person is going to perform. Mm-hmm. So, hiring is, you know, experience is kind of important, but not necessarily. I think it's really attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, having diversity is, I think, important. And having too much experience, I think, can be sometimes negative. Um, you know, I think that what you want to do is, you want people to apply themselves to the culture that you've created and not... Like, every time we've hired a, a manager in the kitchen, it backfires because they haven't gone through... They don't know what it is to be, like, an employee at the house. Um, mm. And it's hard It's hard to instill any sort of authority or meaningful um, meaningful insight when you're not even sort of... You've got an outside perspective. Our, the general manager at Sahav started at Sahav six and a half years ago as a busboy. Um, and he's an incredible person, and, and not everybody is like him. But as Mike said, I mean, our experience with hiring managers from the outside that hasn't, haven't worked with us before is pretty poor. Our track record with promoting people from within has been has been excellent, and 
as you said, it's less about experience. I mean, you know, I, most most of our managers were never managed, they never managed anybody before they became a manager for us. But they were steeped in our culture, and they knew exactly mm-hmm. what we would want them to do in any situation, especially when it would come to a guest. I mean, you could teach people how to prepare reports or um, or do spreadsheets, or you can give them the number to the plumber and teach them how to like troubleshoot. What you can't do, um, what you can't teach them is how to. You can't teach them hospitality. That's got to mm-hmm. that's got to come from them. And so, if it's somebody that's we're promoting from within, that sort of by definition means that they get the whole you know the hospitality culture that we're trying to promote. Awesome. And I mean, what about the people who? eventually you have to source from outside of your, your, uh, you know, family of restaurants. So when they do come on board, how do you guys convey that information to con- convey your culture to them? So they know what you, you and your restaurants are all about. Mm, I think it's really hard to convey. I think they have to be part of it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a crapshoot, you know, I mean, awesome. we bring, I mean, obviously we, we bring cooks and servers in from the outside all the time. And there's a lot of peer led, um, a lot of peer-led teaching. I mean, but when it comes to managers, really, we don't. I mean, I think our growth rate is very much limited by, you know, our human resources. And if we have somebody who's a line person that's ready to grow into management, we need we need to find an opportunity for them or they'll leave. So I don't think we would come up with a new concept and say, let's go get some managers. We would already have them identified from within. But on a line level, it's, you know, training. It's it's a pretty – the culture is – especially a place like Zaha, which is around for seven years now, culture is so strong that it's in, in most effective, I think, when it's peer-led. Mm. It sounds like you guys are saying, like, you, you make that culture clear and you also provide the tools and the opportunity for growth. That kind of goes into the next question, which is talking about your advice on retaining these great people once you find them. Um, one thing I want to point out, one thing I thought was awesome as far as – um, you know, investing in your people and, and feeding into those higher needs of feeling loved and feeling welcomed and like they're growing is in 2018, you guys had a trip out to, um, where was it? Uh, Israel, correct? Yeah. 2008. Yep. Two, yeah. Sorry. 2008. I'm, I'm jumping into the future. Sorry. Uh, yeah. 2008 you guys <laughs> went out <laughs> to Israel. I mean, you brought your whole team with you. I mean, or at least the management team, like, that to me, tell us about that, you know, why you did that and the outcome of that and just the, the whole purpose of it. Well, I think this is Mike. We were doing something really new, and I think that it was really difficult to explain what Israeli food was. And we thought the easiest way to do it was just to go. And it worked. I mean, it was pretty effective. We had a really good time. It was obviously a good sort of bonding experience prior to that, but... It showed our management team, you know, the investment that we were trying to make into the concept and how strongly we felt about it. I mean, how did they feel? How, did they show any gratitude? Like, what was the energy and the, the vibe within the team after this trip? It was awesome, man. We were really, really fired up. I mean, we were very excited. A lot of the things, though, I guess as Steve was saying, it was like we were so we, – we, we saw – certain things and we experienced things in Israel and we tried to reproduce them here and and when it didn't work or when it didn't carry over, we were pretty stubborn or slow to react. And, and we'd obviously do things differently now. Um, you know, being over in Israel was a, a context for what it was that we were doing there. Everything that we experienced there couldn't directly be translated into serving Israeli food like eastern Pennsylvania. Mm. But we take this stuff really seriously and, and uh, we invest 
you know, emotionally and, uh, you know, financially into our team. And, and uh, it was great to be able to do that. I, I thought think, it was cool. I mean, oh, I don't think anybody you know. would argue. I mean, what you guys could have just, what you must have gotten out of that experience. I mean, when you invest in your people, when you do these incredible things to show your people that you, um, you know, you're willing to take them across the world so they can learn. They're they're growing personally. They're getting an understanding that you truly do care about them and themselves as professionals. That you're investing this in their personal and professional growth. I mean. When you do those things for people, they don't forget it, and they will serve you so much harder and so much longer. And um, they, I mean, there's just only great things come of that kind of kindness and that kind of generosity as owners. And I think that's one thing we can all learn from. So awesome stuff there. Thanks. No problem. All right. Do you guys want to add anything onto that, or are we good to move on? No, but if you want to, if you want to come on the 2018 trip, let us know. Yeah, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm right there. Great. <laughs> All right. The next question I have for you guys is on the topic of you know educating yourself and finding out what books you guys have shared amongst yourselves. I mean, are there any books you'd recommend, whether they're personal growth or restaurant books or just business books that you think are just must-reads for anybody getting into this industry? Well, I mean, I think you mentioned Danny Meyer before, and I think I speak for Mike when I say that his – philosophy has been a big influence on both of us so i think mm-hmm. setting the table is a great book um what's one lesson from know, that book that you think is worth it's been a while since i read about it but i i do think what you pointed out about you know what he says about being able to write the end of the story you know mm-hmm. especially while the guest is in the restaurant you know if, that's why we spend so much time trying to figure out how someone's meal experience is going because we know that while they're still in the restaurant we have a great opportunity to quote unquote right at the end of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the minute they step out the door, that, that opportunity diminishes considerably. So I would say that is the lesson, you know, one of the one of the great concrete lessons to come out of that book. Awesome. Any other gems you guys want to add? I love the French Laundry Cookbook, man. I just think it's sort of timeless and <clears throat> so beautifully put together and the, the chapters are about sort of individuals or different products and this and that and it's really it's cool. I love still reading that book. What's, There's a Wayne Dukas book where he goes to Provence as well, and it's sort of like in the style of being handwritten, and he talks about these little sort of stops along the way or where to get, like, the best French olive oil or where to get, like, chickpea panisse when you're in the south of France. And it seems really personal and also quite warm. And you're still talking about the French Laundry? Uh, no, I went from French Laundry to the Alain Ducasse flavors oh. of Provence. Oh, okay. Awesome. Great. Yeah, I'm not, I haven't heard that one. I'll have all the links to these books in the show notes if you guys are interested in checking them out. Thank you for sharing those. All right, so let's talk a little bit about marketing now. And um, this is a quote I kind of want to share with our listeners going into this question um, because I have a feeling it's going to go here anyway. So Zahav has been said to arguably be the propeller of the modern Middle Eastern cooking trend currently gaining traction nationwide. Now, my question to you guys is, would you say that you're leading a trend or are you just doing what you love and you're doing it so freaking awesome that people are saying this is now a trend? I don't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, I think, it's, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, we talk a lot about authenticity and how, you can't fake it. So I think that, you know, this food is very personal, specifically to Mike. And I think that, you know, you couldn't just give someone else's idea and tell them to run with it and have anywhere near the same results. Um, we're, you know, 
we're pretty, uh, I think Mike is pretty um, uh, gracious in his sort of role as an ambassador of this kind of food. And while we certainly like to be mentioned whenever people are talking about the movement, we don't need to be the leaders of anything. I mean, this is like, this is a very personal restaurant to both of us, and it's, it's, it is what we love to do. But we're, I think, I'll speak for Mike, I mean, I think especially gratified to see that, you know, Israeli cuisine is being promoted and seems to be gathering some momentum and as a, you know, a, a different side of, a, a different side of Israel than I think a lot of people are used to hearing about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I just wanted to point that out. I didn't want to put words or thoughts into your, you know, your, or impose them over you. But I mean, when I read that, one of the things I hate so much on, in a, it's come up a few times on the show is this idea of a trend. Um, if you want to be successful in this industry, don't go chasing trends, just do what you love. And it sounds like that's what you guys do. And the advice that comes up time and time again is market yourself and your restaurant as one. And that's what I see with you guys. There, I mean, you aren't like pitching concepts. You're just doing what you love, who you are. You're just using these restaurants to express who you are as individuals. And I think we can learn a lot. And I mean, do you guys want to go on a different um, tangent on the topic of marketing? Is there any advice you have other than that? Well, I think, I mean, it's funny. It's interesting to say that. I mean, I think every single day somebody is opening the Chipotle of X or the Chipotle of Y. And like, that's not how Chipotle got successful. They, they had, you know, an idea that they believed in. They didn't, you don't start out a concept saying, I'm going to have a hundred stores. You start out with one because it's something that you believe in. And if the public agrees with you, then maybe you open a second one. So I couldn't agree with you more. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Uh, are we going to add anything on before moving to the next question? No, I think we're good. So the next question I have is on the topic of technologies. I mean, the technological world is changing faster than ever. And the truth is there's a lot of these systems and tools and processes that are kind of embedded into technology that we can implement into our restaurants, whether front of house or back of house to be more profitable, to be more efficient and to, to communicate better. Are you using any of these new tools that are coming out, whether front of house or back of house? And I mean, how are you leveraging them and what uh, suggestions do you have? I'll speak to cooking tools. I mean, we, um, I don't have any problems with like, um, uh, molecular or scientific cooking. I, I think that what, what has been the best for us is to utilize natural fuel or primitive cooking methods. And I think that it's kind of nice to say, you know what, we're going to take the circulator out of the kitchen. I'm not, I don't mind to be cooking. I think it's awesome, but you know, we cook things here over natural fuel, like charcoal, um, you know, meat on sticks and mm-hmm. bread in a wood-burning oven. But uh, we do have a CVAP that's great for holding grains. So I think that, you know, it's hard. I mean, everybody's trying to get to those, like, elemental experiences that you have as a kid that kind of shape the way that you think about food. The food okay. that you can taste, you can close your eyes and say, you know, for me, it's like I ate my grandmother's specs on this day, and I remember exactly how it tastes. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that, you know, you can't rep- you can't replicate those in restaurants, so you really try to be as consistent as you can. And, and with that, I think, comes new technique or cooking apparatus, uh, which we embrace. What's more important, I think the Paco Jet is, is sort of my favorite. And that's the ice cream machine, you know, and that is, uh, it makes basically all the new ice cream and sorbets and can make these fresh fruit sorbets that are, like, perfection. So that's my favorite. What was it called? Tea is in Peter. 
A, C is in chat, O, and then chat, J-E-T. Paco Jet, got it. Yeah. Awesome, cool. Yeah. Um, now, are there any technologies yeah. you're using in front of us? I mean, we, you know, we've been migrating more towards, um, instead of hardware-based POS systems, more um, iPad-based POS systems. You know, we use OpenTable, obviously. We're not, I wouldn't say we're early adopters of front of house technology. Um, I try to keep keep abreast of what's going on and, and selectively, once things are, once things are a little bit more vetted out in the market, we'll, we'll jump into it. But, uh, Two of the pieces yeah. of software that come up often on the show, and you might be interested in hearing this, are Square and Breadcrumbs. Are those two you've been looking into? We actually use both of those at different places. Um, we're big, big fans of uh, Square. We use Square at all of our federal donut locations, and um, you know we've been with them for you know four years now, and have watched them grow and watched them add their capabilities, and are very excited i think to see where they go as a company because i think they are really really smart and mm-hmm. i think really add really add value in a way that some of their you know i think they really add value in that in the space that they compete in yeah and one thing i want to commend you guys on um one thing that i think you're really smart to focus with is your ability to listen and are there any tools you're using to listen yeah, I mean, we monitor every, you know, every every place where people can leave reviews of restaurants, we look at, and we try to reach out to everybody that takes the time to, to comment about their experience. I mean, the hardest thing to get in our business is honest feedback. Um, most people don't want to be brutally honest because they don't want to hurt your feelings or mm-hmm. they just want to get back to enjoying their meal. So what, good or bad, we're appreciative of that, and we use that information, and that's critical. I mean, if you hear, if you hear one comment about a dish being salty or whatever that's one thing but if you hear it a few times in a row then you start to yeah try and start to develop in your mind and that that is critical to our ability to adapt is there a platform you guys use that kind of to act as a dashboard so you can kind of monitor all these different places we don't i mean we've been pitched uh, uh on those on those things but uh to be honest it's not that hard to just use the native uh, <laughs> application. No, cool. I'm just trying to suck as much information out of you guys as possible. Don't mind me. Um, I am, uh, you know, there's one thing I do want to share in case you haven't heard of it, in case anybody else is interested in kind of leveraging the the power of listening. There's one company called Hum, and it's kind of, it's a, basically all it is, it's a survey that's presented with the check at the end of the meal. It's it's digital on a, a tablet. And you can ask all these questions to kind of filter and find out. Another thing that it does too is it gives them an opportunity, your guests, to to complain before they ever get out to the public and give you these bad reviews. So it's called Hum. Yeah. I'll have I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but I think it's I mean just based off of your philosophies, I think it's something you guys might want to check out. It's great stuff. Oh yeah, I'd love, I'd love to check it out. Yeah, cool. All right, cool. Um, so the next question, and we're almost done, is if you guys could go back in time to maybe the first day you met, and you could give yourselves one piece of business advice, what would it be and why? <laughs> to the first day, give each other a piece of business advice? <laughs> you could do that or yourselves. Uh, if you could just go back in time with all the information you've gathered over the years, um, if you could just give one piece of business advice, what would it be? I mean, I think that's kind of like a broken record, but I think that putting the the customer's needs first, focusing on the total experience, not just, you know, what, what an interesting sauce pattern I can make on a plate or, uh, 
how much foie gras and truffles I can put in shit, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. That's not really good business advice, though. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, what about anything else? I'm, you guys sound so about you. Yeah. I think I think just 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 keep authenticity. You know, make sure that that's uh, always on your mind. And I don't mean like the dish has to be prepared the way that your grandmother prepared it. That's mm-hmm. of authenticity. But a common advice to writers is write what you know. Mm-hmm. And I think applying that to what we do. I mean, I think our success is we have a we have a, a unique, legitimate perspective on. And I think some of the things where we haven't been as successful are things that we try to conjure try to conjure up. And you know, we're you know, I always use this example. I mean, we, Mike and I both went to culinary schools that are based on the French method of cooking. So mm-hmm. if we wanted to open a, a French bistro or brasserie, we probably could do a credible one. But I don't think it would be successful ultimately because I think that it's not who we are. That's somebody, you know, there's, that's somebody else is passionate about that. So mm-hmm. that would be my advice to ourselves. Awesome. Um, I've asked all the questions I have. This is your time to add a question. I mean, are there any questions you think I could have asked you that would have added more value to this interview? You're pretty thorough to be honest. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were reading you while you were asking questions. You killed it, bro. Thanks, dude. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate you guys. Um, you've been so uh, generous with your time. We're going to wrap it up now. We have you do that by calling someone out who is or who are some restaurant professionals, some innovators in the industry, indie professionals preferably you guys admire and think we make great guest mentors i think uh greg vernick from vernick food and drink in philly is awesome i think uh charles charles san from san francisco is like pretty amazing and tony montuano from spiaggia chicago those are my those are my shout out i'll go with mike i think i agree with mike Awesome. All right, you guys, look out. I'll be coming after you. I would love to have you join us as guest mentors on the show. Uh, You two have been incredible. If anybody listening wants to come work for you or just wants to maybe bounce some questions off you, do you have an email we can connect with or maybe, I don't know, your Twitter handles you want to share with us? Yeah, I mean, they can email us at info at cookandsolo.com and we'll see that. Or, uh, you know, our Twitter handles are at cookandsolo at the Hub Restaurant. Any of those would be good to get in touch with us. All right. Awesome. I love it. Uh, You guys are without a doubt unstoppable. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, You guys at home can find everything we talked about at www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash cook and solo. Thanks, Thanks man. Absolutely. I will. Thank you very much, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Another episode to toss in the archives here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode with these two great professionals, Mike and Steve. Man, you guys rocked it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If you guys want to check out everything, like I said, Restaurant Unstoppable slash Cook and Solo, uh, you can find all the links to the books and to the things we discussed, a recap of all of our discussions right there in the show notes. Also, uh, check out Restaurant Unstoppable slash Tools and Restaurant Unstoppable slash Books. For a complete list of our past guests and the tools and books they have suggested we look into to help make our 
restaurants run just a little bit more unstoppable. And as always, I am looking for guests to be on the show. So if you can think of anybody, if you admire anyone in the, in the industry, don't be afraid to shoot me an email, eric at restaurantsunstoppable.com, uh, with whoever you think would be a good guest on the show. Or, or if you just have some critiques, just let me know. I'm totally open, always looking to improve. But I need to, like our guest today suggest, listen to your customers. I don't have customers, I have listeners. And uh, I need to listen to my listeners. So tell me what I can do to make the show better, guys. I'm here for you. All right, until next time, peace out.